Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. We are exclusively now part of the SEU Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kent Engel, president of Southeastern University, and I'm excited to introduce our co-host for today's show, Sean Spicer. Sean served as the 28th White House Press Secretary, as well as the White House Communications Director in 2017. Sean, honored to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, in today's uh, conversation, I want our listeners to learn from uh, your leadership experience, not only in the White House, but but also in view of the public eye. Uh, in in the U.S., you know, American citizens are given that unique privilege to follow their dreams, no matter how ambitious that might seem. Your personal road to success led you to, uh, I, I know, communicate on behalf of the most powerful office in the world. And in order for you to land that position, you had to put some work in during the early part of your career. Sean, you began working for the U.S. government in 1999 when you joined the U.S. Naval Reserve as a public affairs officer. How was that career, and, and, and how did that career progress to, uh, from the reserves to serving in the White House? Well, actually, my, my first government stint was in 1994, working in the United States Senate. Okay. Uh, and then uh, and then I worked in the House of Representatives. I, I got involved in the, the reserve on the military side, as you mentioned, in 1999, and uh, I'm now in my 22nd year, 21st. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm ending, I just ended my 21st, I'm on to my 22nd. It's my how time flies. Um, and I think... I, you know, I, I think it, it's interesting because it's a nice mix sure. of worlds um, that military has a, a very different lead, or particularly the Navy. Um, we're a much more, I would say, independent branch um, than, say, the Army, which kind of teaches you this whole, you know, kind of group mentality. You're, you're obviously leading a battalion um, or, you know, or, or a brigade. Um, in the Navy, you know, um, you're leading, but you're you're the people that we, you know, the 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 officers in the navy, uh, whether it's on a ship or a shore command, I think, are generally, you know, given much more autonomy. It's like you know your job, you know what you're supposed to do. Go do it. Um, I spent some time in the joint environment, and it's it's a little different for some of the other services in terms of the ethos that exists. But I think that helped me a lot because. The civilian, I mean, there's a big difference in the military. You can order somebody to go do something, sure, and that right. just doesn't always work on the civilian side. But there was sort of this nice mix of understanding sort of where that middle ground was between, you know, wanting to get a tax done and making sure that you train. The other thing that I think the military does really well is sort of lessons learned. It's constantly looking back and saying, okay, did we do that well? Could we have done it better after action reports? And, and I kind of have used that in my civilian life as well to say, okay, guys, Hey, we did that really well today. Why did it go so well so that we ensure that we do it again? Um, and those are the kind of things that, you know, I, I I think that there's, it's, it's interesting because for me, I've been able to take a lot of the lessons on one side of my life and, and apply them to the other side, which I think has been super helpful. Yeah. Uh, now, why did you start working in public relations and communications for government agencies? How, how'd you get down that <laughs> pathway? So I started um, doing campaigns in the early 90s. I was a field staffer. Um, and, you know, basically, pain, you know, there's there's sort of uh, two two roads, the political side, i.e. The, the sort of the get out the vote, that part. And then there's the communication and the messaging piece. Um, what I loved, what I soon 
realized about the press side was it was sort of a, you knew every day how you were doing. So if you put out a press release, did anybody pick it up? Did they put out, you know, if you did an event, did they pick that up? Did they pick up the part that you wanted? Did you, you know, were you about to get attacked, but you kind of quelled uh, a potentially negative story? Did you turn something around? Um, you always knew whether or not you had had basically a successful day, um, either kind of tamping down something that was potentially bad or, you know, getting out and amplifying something that was good. And I loved the immediacy of it. I love crafting a message and then trying to figure out, okay, how do we get that out? How do we amplify it? Um, so anyway, um, Let me ask you. I, I, I just, I loved, I loved the ability, like, and I'll, I'll into one more quick part on the, on the legislative side, especially on Capitol Hill, you know, you, you find these legislative aides and they can sometimes work for literally years to advance a piece of legislation, sometimes very incrementally, if at all. Right. And so for me, the idea of going, okay, I put this release out now, it's my job to make sure it gets picked up. And I can tell you at the end of the day, especially now the way mediums are, social media in particular, and email, everything, did it get picked up? Did it get amplified? And for me, that sense of like, okay, I don't have to wait to the end of a Congress to know, did my effort get picked up? That, that meant a lot. Right. Let me ask you this. What are some things that most people don't understand about working in the press? They have they have no idea about it. Well, I think the first and foremost, in my opinion, is that, you know, um, most reporters don't know a lot about what they're reporting on. Um, and that's not I'm trying to you know, I think for some people they might look at that. It's, it's more of a current demand. Right. So right. if you think about what's going on in the world today, um, you, you just, the, the media's got, you know, I remember the first, not the first, but one of the big first campaigns I did, um, the reporter that was assigned to us was the local environmental reporter. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this woman literally knows nothing about politics or campaigns. Um, and so, you know, when you see something on the news or in print, there's this, there's this belief that somehow the reporter is an expert in the right, area. Right. Yeah. And generally speaking, they're not. They don't have any clue. They're literally being assigned something that morning and told, okay, hey, go write a story about, you know, X issue or what have you. And I think for most people, they assume that somehow the person that wrote it must have some kind of expertise in the area. Yeah. Uh, walk us through. Now, how did you start working with President Trump? So that's an interesting question. I was the, um, when I was at the RNC, um, there was, um, I, I had been sort of put, put in charge of creating a debate schedule for the RNC, uh, managing, I mean, th this might come as a shock to most people, but the, the irony is, is that the RNC actually had little to no say over its primary debates. Literally no say. Hmm. When I started at the RNC in 2012, during when Mitt Romney ultimately became the nominee of the party, we would literally ask organizations, can we get tickets, you know, for the chairman or myself to attend a Republican debate? I mean, it just sounds so silly. It, you're like, literally, the, the debate is to decide the nominee of your party at the National Committee had no say in it. And, you know, was like literally at the mercy of these media organizations. So I had taken that over. Obviously, that became a big deal for Donald Trump. And so I got to know him starting through that process because he took a particular interest in it personally. Okay, how many you know people are there? Where, where are the podiums? Where are they going to be seated? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so that's and then what happened was as the the uh, 
uh, what do you want to call it? The, the, the cycle evolved and Trump became ultimately, you know, as was headed to become the nominee. I, I've always been an institutionalist. And my view is at the nominee of the party, once the people, the voters decide who it is, then your job is to basically work as hard as you can to elect that person. Right. You, you, I always say the RNC is supposed to be the league. We don't take sides in which team is going to win. We create an equal playing field and let the voters decide. Um, and so I had sort of, you know, said, okay, this is the deal. This is who the voters have picked. And now it's my job to go out there and support the guy. Um, you know, I, I don't think everybody was excited about that necessarily, but I have taken, I sort of literally believe that that's the mission. And therefore, um, you know, uh, when it came time to, 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 for him to, you know, he became a nominee, he kind of looked over and says, says, okay, you know, here's Sean, who has been kind of with me since I became the nominee. I got to know him and, and I developed a relationship and, and it was, there weren't a lot of people to be blunt that really wanted to play that role. And so I had kind of um, gotten to play a rather outsized role because very few people really wanted to get involved in the race. They didn't think that Trump was Republican enough. They didn't think he could win. And so people were kind of taking a pass at the whole thing. Uh, as I said, I, my view was, well, that's not our call. The voters have decided he's our nominee. Therefore, you know, we must help him in every way that we can. And so, you know, the irony is that people always ask me how I got my job. And I'd love to tell you that, you know, I beat out a thousand people for the job. But the the reality was is that there weren't that many of us that had you know, had the requisite experience, had the trust of him, had been around him for a while. And so suddenly, you know, he wins and he looks around and there's not a whole heck of a lot of people that were like, hey, you know, had been supporting him. Sure. And and and, and so now so you're in that job, you're in that role. What what's it like to be the voice of the president where every word I mean, they're going to pay attention to every single word. Well, I think, you know, it's an interesting question that you ask, because I don't know that it exists. I think that the answer is is normally tough, but I think the answer under Donald Trump is much tougher yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I just he is not a normal politician. And, and um, you know, when I took the job, um, I made a lot of assumptions about, OK, well, this is going to be a very traditional thing and he's going to do this. And the reality was, you know. I made a lot of assumptions, and this gets back to your question about leadership, that I probably shouldn't have made, meaning that I thought to myself, okay, I think I know what he likes. I know how he wants me to act. I know how this goes. And so I'll just kind of, you know, I I, I got it. And I think in retrospect, I should have sat down with him for, you know, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever. So, Mr. President-elect, you want to do the following. You know, this is how we've behaved and acted during the campaign. Is this kind of still how you want us to operate? Mm. And, and kind of gotten him to say, you know, yeah, Sean, I want you to still do that. Or look, now that I'm president, this is how I want to act or whatever it is. But, you know, it, it, that was an element looking back on, that I sort of look at and say, you know, the, the right answer would have been to sit down and have that discussion. And I didn't do it. And that's on me. Yeah. Um, and, and it's sort of, you know, to your point, it's, there are assumptions that we make all the time about what somebody wants and how this, this should go down. And I think obviously in some cases it's appropriate to make those. We don't need to bother a leader or higher up, you know, to find out, you know, whether they want a peanut butter or jelly sandwich. Uh, but, but I think if they're, 
you know, if it's a state dinner, we might want to say, hey, normally you like peanut butter and jelly, but uh, this right. is a state dinner. Do you think we should, you know, and, and I say that obviously facetiously, but the reality is, is that, you know, figuring out where that line is, is important. And I learned a lot in that job about where that line is. Yeah. And, and, and as you look back and reflect, any, anything else that you learned about leadership from your time in that role? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of how we handled ourselves, look, I, I will say this. I made, I tried to put a staff together that I thought, um, brought together a lot of the various factions. There was the RNC, there was, um, folks from the Trump campaign, there were supporters. And, and part of the goal in my mind was to try to create, you know, I, I wouldn't say a team, like trying to create a, 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 trying to bring all the factions together. And the problem was is that in retrospect, there were some people that I shouldn't have hired um, because they weren't qualified. Uh, they weren't team players. They had them out for themselves. But just to keep the peace, we hired some people that in retrospect were not the right people. Yeah, yeah. We are talking with New York Times bestselling author Sean Spicer. We're going to take a quick commercial break. And here's a word from our sponsors. If you're a driven professional striving to expand your leadership and pack change at any level of your organization, Southeastern University's online master's degree in leadership is definitely for you. This program provides you the opportunity to learn in the context of entrepreneurship, nonprofit leadership, research, or organizational leadership. You can apply today at seu.edu apply. That's seu.edu apply. Sean, I believe it was in 2017, you made the decision to resign from your position as the White House Press Secretary and Communications Director. I can only imagine that this decision came with a lot of great consideration and, and wisdom. How'd you know it was time to take a step back from your responsibilities at the White House? Uh, it's a long story, uh, but the reality is, is that I sort of, I, and I, 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 the first book I ever wrote called The Briefing kind of walks through a lot of this, but basically... I knew that things were not getting, you know, had, had not gone well out of the gate. I had some, some rather public and epic moments that weren't fantastic. And, um, and so I sort of knew that at some point, you know, things aren't, weren't going to get better. They might tamp down for a while, but, but they weren't, it wasn't like you were ever going to see this moment where it's like, Oh, okay, great. Everything is, you know, good to go again. So I sort of started to say to myself, okay, when the time is appropriate, if I find that moment in time, um, take it down on your own terms as opposed to, you know, getting fired, if you will. And I, I think I wrote, and again, I'd have to go back. It's been a few years now, but I, I wrote this in my first book that, you know, there was a moment where um, I knew that I, I wrote a resignation letter and I think it was in May and I knew that at some point the time would come. Like I said, I, I didn't have it down to like the, the second or the moment. I just knew that, you know, this is going to happen. And when it comes, take it. Um, and so there was a moment when we had been looking for additional help at the White House. We were vastly um, understaffed. I was serving two roles at once, White House communication instructor and press secretary. Um, and once there was a there was a moment when, the when you know, there was um, – a decision that the president had said, Hey, you know, Anthony Scaramucci has been helping out. Uh, he's been helping out at the camp uh, during the, the cycle on the campaign with some media hits. He said, you know, we need some help. I agreed with him. He said, you know, we need some, we, you know, you're basically doing two jobs. 
And um, so I made a decision that that was the appropriate time to give the president a clean break. Um, I, I just didn't think that Anthony and I would work well together, that he had the skill set necessary to execute the job. And, and, you know, a lot of times people say to me, oh, like, I'm not, this isn't a personal slight against Anthony. Um, he had been a, a very successful person on Wall Street. Um, I just, I, I knew what the job entailed. Um, and right. so therefore I thought, okay, I, I don't, and, and again, this is not like, a, it's, it's sort of, he, he's probably very good at, you know, uh, investing and things like that. But I, I just go, okay, well, it's the job of communication instructors to understand all the branches, all the different agencies and departments and outside stakeholders, et cetera. Um, he's never worked in communications. He's never worked in government. And so, I, you know, I, I literally just thought, okay, this does not have, this does not look good. And, uh, and, and therefore, I said, okay, this is the time to get out. And I, I went to the president and I just said, hey, look, you know, you, you keep talking about looking for, um, uh, you know, trying to do a reset. I think you're right. Um, and so, you know, this is the time. And I look, I, I, I just believe that there are times when a moment uh, or an issue is greater than yourself. And you need to know when. Right. That to, to sort of step aside, and and for me that was that moment. And and ultimately, how has that affected you as a leader now? I mean, I, I think it's made me stronger because, I, again, I think there are times when when things aren't going well, and people hold on for the sake of holding right. on. They don't want right. to give up. Right. I, and I understand that there's a difference between giving up and knowing. You know, it's one thing if like you had a company or something, eighteen lives depended on you you know, uh, making payroll at the end of the month. And you were saying, okay, well, if I walk away, these people are going to starve. But this was, this is government. This was not my administration as President Trump's. And, you know, it was sort of trying to figure out a time and a place where um, it was the appropriate thing to do. And I mean, I look back on it and I, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I know I made the right decision um, in terms of timing and, and, the method and everything. I, I joke with folks that like, I haven't had a bad discussion with the president since the day I left. It's been great because I, it's been better to, to work, you know, to be a supporter of his than an employee. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Hey, now, since you've left the white house, you've, you, I mean, you've remained pretty busy. You've written and published a few books, uh, the briefing, as you mentioned, politics, the press and the president in 2017, most recently this year, uh, writing a, a, a brand new book, leading America, president Trump's commitment to people, patriotism and capitalism. And I actually have a copy of it right here with me. Talk, talk to us about this book and, uh, and kind of the synopsis. What's it all about? I mean, to put it bluntly, it's sort of a firsthand account of the of the forces that we face in society and culture today. So I talk about Hollywood, big tech, academia, something you're obviously very familiar with, um, corporate America, all of these forces and a lot about journalism and sort of give people an inside look. You know, a lot of times people ask me all the time about journalists. You know, do you think that it'll get better when this happens? Do you think if you read the chapter on journalism, I think you understand why journalists act the way they do and why I don't have much hope that there'll be sort of an improvement. Um, because I, I, you have to understand how journalists are taught and what the culture is inside of these newsrooms. And the beauty is that because, uh, because of the roles that I've had, I think I can give a, a pretty amazing insight into journalism and journalism and, and what's, what it's like to deal with these folks. On Hollywood, obviously, my time on Dancing with the Stars and going out there and some of the projects that I've worked on, I think will give people a real lot of insight as far as like how the place works and why 
they act against their own self-interest so many times um, where you say that, you know, gosh, that, that would make a great movie. That would make a great project. And yet Hollywood doesn't do it or more of it. And you say to yourself, well, why is that the case? And the answer is because they do a lot to ensure that, um, that, that their way of life is preserved is probably the best way of putting it. Um, meaning that they, they will turn down things that are profitable or would have a huge audience just because they don't promote, you know, a left leaning culture, uh, principle that they believe in. Um, you know, and again, talk about big tech and, and, uh, corporate America. But then I also talk about my experience on university campuses and what's going on there and what, why kids are the way they are and what's happening in both K through 12, as well as higher education, because it is fascinating to me when I go on a college campus and I've been to UPenn, I've been to Berkeley, I've been to, you know, uh, countless other schools, uh, throughout the country to give talks on campus. And it's funny how, when you actually start having a dialogue with these students and, and, and almost, and not almost in every case, the event is sold out. And I think part of this is there's this yearning on college campuses for these kids to, to actually engage and talk to and listen to somebody from an opposing standpoint. And frankly, half the time they just don't know it's opposing. They just have been told that, right. you know, like, it's not like it's, it's actually against what they, someone's just told them, Oh, conservatives are horrible people. And this is what they believe. And it's funny. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll engage with them and ask them, when was the last time you actually talked to someone on the other side? Well, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever, I've ever talked to anyone. And that's, what's always fascinating to me is that there's this lack of, you know, at a, at a time and a place when kids are supposed to be growing and exposed to all different ideas and, and thoughts, and, and it's we, we sh- they get sheltered and they grow out learning and believing something because they've never been exposed to it or had the ability to actually engage in a substantive way. So, for me, you know, the book it really gives me a chance to kind of walk through these things, not in a very esoteric sort of. Um, hypothetical and notional way. It's like, here's me on a campus explaining to you literally what happens. Here's me talking about engaging with some of these journalists, my experience in Hollywood with dancing with the start. I mean, I think that's what separates is that when you read some books, sometimes about culture or whatever, it's all sort of this notional, like Prince, you know, here's these things pie in the sky. The difference with me is that I've walked in those shoes and I can tell you, here's what it's like to go on this campus. Here's what it's like to engage with a lot of these reporters. Yeah. In, in, your, in your opinion, let me ask you, why have uh, so many college campuses trended towards being closed off to conservative ideas and closed off to good, productive dialogue? I mean, it, it's all about, you know, civil discourse and being able to exchange ideas. And, and, and that's what a university is all about, being able to, uh, you know, be strong, critical thinkers. But why have so many colleges drifted towards being closed, absolutely closed to conservative ideas? ideas? Well, I I think a lot of it is actually because, um, I I think a lot of it is because the administrators and the professors teach them that. Look at, I mean, I I write this in in terms of the syllabus and, and read, I mean, this is what they are taught. And so if you're a college kid, um, you're sort of hearing from these folks that are saying, Hey, this is, uh, this is a bad thing or being, or talking to this person or being involved or, you know, whatever it is, they're, they're, they're sort of being told this is bad. This is good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we we uh, we launched the American Center for Political Leadership here at Southeastern University. Uh, Dennis Ross, former congressman, uh, when he yep. retired, he, he is now um, our distinguished professor leading that center. But but it is it's all about civil discourse and um, civil involvement and getting both sides to come together and, and reason together uh, in a way that helps us to bring solutions that um, meets everybody. Uh, so so I know we're we're. Here at SEU, we're trying to, to work hard at, at, at doing that. So, uh, and feel like the students are are yearning for that kind of um, you know development where they can truly pursue truth and do it in a way they can become strong critical thinkers and it has balance to it. So, that's important to us. That's for sure. You're currently hosting a television talk show on Newsmax called uh, Newsmax called Spicer and Company. Tell us a little bit about that show. So every night um, at 6 o'clock Eastern time, we have a – I mean, basically what we try to have is the political discussion that you might have at home around your table. We don't yell. We don't harass anybody. We invite some of the most insightful people around who, you know, understand what's happening um, in a particular issue and and then kind of literally have a conversation with them. Um, so the beauty is, is that I don't pretend to be a journalist. So I can literally tell you what I think. And, you know, like the guests can sometimes say, I agree. And here's why, or here's why I think you're off the mark. Or, but, you know, the beauty is um, um, that we have a conversation every night at six o'clock that is sort of gives people that understanding beyond what they see on other shows. The difference is that, you know, I've been in the game. I've been at the white house. I was on Capitol Hill. I understand these institutions. And so when I'm talking, um, like I said, you know, to your earlier question, I actually can tell you the reality of, of why something is being done or not being done or what the thinking is usually behind something, as opposed to just hypothesizing about it, which is right. what I think a lot of television hosts who've never been in the game do. And I think that there's a big difference between, um, you know, um, you know, that, that kind of context. Yeah. Well, what's the key uh, uh, to a good discussion, to a good dialogue together? I mean, I, th- I think the key is, is, you know, being able to respect the other person and being able to listen to what they're saying. And, you know, and, and, and again, I think the key for me, it's listening to what they're saying and then queuing off of some of those things that they say. Right. So part of it is saying, wow, that's an interesting point you made. Can you expand upon that? Or where did you come up with it? But, but you want to walk away with the, from the discussion, I think smarter than when you started it. Right. And that means actively listening to what they have to say, kind of, um, going with the flow so that you mean oh, there's times when you write down 15 questions that you want to ask and then think, wow, I didn't get to any of them because something that they brought up really just sort of, um, um, you know, intrigued me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, uh, we just went through one of the most divisive, if not the most divisive election, uh, continues to show the division in our nation. How, how are we going to be able to move? How are we ever going to move towards civility as a nation? Well, look, it's an interesting question that you've asked. I, you know, I, I am a, a fan of I love engaging with in debate and ideas. I really do. I love listening to the other side. I love talking about it. I just, I'm, I'm a proud conservative and I believe that, you know, there, there, I can back up everything I say with a, a rationale. Why sometimes it's a deep you know, faith that I believe in something, but sometimes it's just, I think more times than not, it's common sense and makes and, and sort of, 
when you play out the argument, um, I believe that the conservative stance is much more practical, makes much more sense, and is beneficial to society as a whole. Um, I, I love having that discussion. The problem that I have found, and I talk about this in the book, is that you know when I went out to Hollywood, um, I I never got criticized from the right. It wasn't anyone on the on the in right wing media or commentators said, "I can't believe Spicer's going off and doing this Dance with the Stars thing and discussing stuff and taking you know getting seen hanging out with these folks." It was the folks on the left that were saying to folks. Don't you dare hang out with them. Don't you dare have a conversation with them. The left, the, the, the party that talks about, you, you know, um, uh, tolerance and inclusion is the least tolerant and inclusive group of people. And the reality is, is that th- that's a lot of that is going to have to come from them. They're going to have to decide that they want to, because it's not the folks on the right. And, and that's the funny part about this is that you see this now with, um, with, uh, with Biden, he keeps talking about unity, and it's a great catchphrase. We should have unity. We should have unity. But you saw this weekend people getting beat up because right. they were marching down the street supporting President Trump, and the left was silent. Yeah. Not one person. Biden didn't say anything like, hey, guys, this is inappropriate. They, they, they want to preach unity. They don't want to actually do anything about it. Right. Yeah. Hey, I uh, appreciate you you being on this conversation. As we close out our time together, I just want to ask you uh, just a, a few quick practical questions for our listeners. Uh, and, and we have a lot of students. So what advice would you give a college student that still has no idea what to do with their life? I mean, I, I would just say trial and error. I wrote a great paper in college uh, about an internship that I hated. And it was funny. I got an A on the paper. And the professor wrote to me, you know, basically saying, you know, I, the beauty of this is that you've learned from this experience what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do. And I think that's important. It's, you don't have to love everything you do. Part of it is trial and error going, okay, I thought I'd like this. I don't. Now I know what I don't want to do. And don't be afraid to, to try things. This is when you, I mean, frankly, that's when you, you should is go out intern. But I, I think the biggest thing is engage. I did countless internships. And, and, and when I say sometimes the internship was, you know, four or five months, sometimes it was, there's an event coming on and they need help for two weeks. Yeah. But by exposing yourself to a lot of different things, you get to understand an idea of like what you want to do and what you don't. And then the last thing I would just say in that vein is when you do something like that, you know, do it well. Show up early, stay late, do the project. I, when I was at the Republican National Committee, almost every entry level position that I filled was an intern. Um, you know, it, it may have been someone who had interned for us six months earlier or 12 months earlier, whatever. But the thing was, I had been able to observe them and I'd say, wow, that guy, that girl is a hard worker. They, they really, you know, are good with people. They love to go above and beyond. But you got a sense of their work ethic. Um, and so I would just say, engage, intern, and do it well. That's great advice. One last question. What would you say to someone who wants to work within the government and pursue a career in politics? Go for it. I mean, you know, there's there's always opportunities. Someone's always running for office and doing things. Um, so, you know, um, there, there's, you know, it, it, the one thing that I've seen a little bit now with the, in the last 10 years is that it, it, it's not easy sometimes to get that foot in the door. It just, it takes persistence. I remember hitting the pavement, you know, for months, literally trying to get a job on Capitol Hill, sending out resumes, running around to events, not, you know, making follow-up phone calls. It's not just going to get handed to you. Sometimes it takes, um, 
you know, months of determination. But if you, if you're persistent, you'll, you'll succeed. Um, but just remember that it doesn't always just come, you know, in 48 hours or seven days or even, you know, 14 days. Yeah. Great, great wisdom. Well, Sean, I want to express my gratitude for uh, you taking the time to join today on Framework Leadership. I'm thankful for the insight that you provided our listeners today. And if you'd like to stay connected with Sean, you can follow him on social media at Sean Spicer. You can also check out his website, seanspicer.com, or tune into his show on Newsmax, Spicer & Company. Also, be sure you've got to get his latest book, Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism, and Capitalism. Hey, we'll see you next time on Framework Leadership.